through church history. We've gone through all the stuff. We just finished the Reformation era last week, which means that we're in the Age of Enlightenment. Uh, and even then, I have to apologize, because technically it's not the Age of Enlightenment. It's only the Age of Enlightenment, sort of. Because, as I was just talking to Megan uh, before, this, before the class, technically, historians say you really shouldn't start the, the Age of Enlightenment until after the Thirty Years' War is over, because you still have religious wars in, over in Germany and stuff. And that's not until 1648. But that would mean that, what did I say here? Uh, Bacon, Galileo, Descartes, Winthrop, the Westminster Confession, the founding of Harvard, all that happened before the Enlightenment. It's, which is just silly to me. I, I'm like, no, that, that should be part of the Enlightenment. So for the purposes of this class, we're in kind of the Age of Enlightenment. Does that work? Consider it like a proto-Age of Enlightenment. So we're in the proto-Enlightenment. Pre-Enlightenment lightning that's going on. Anyway, so uh, Europe is, is, on, is, is on the cusp, it's on the verge of some massive paradigm shifts. We've already seen several in the last century, which is why we spent so much time in the 16th century, because there's so many paradigm shifts. At the beginning of the 16th century, they had just found that there was another continent, you know, the Americans. And there wasn't such a thing as, uh, as uh, Protestantism. It was all pretty much just the Catholic Church and a couple of scattered sects. And there just started things like printing presses and stuff. So now, Yeah. And so now we've got, not just, in, in a century, not just, oh, Protestantism has kicked in. We've got whole countries that say, I am now officially Protestant. I'm officially not Catholic. You've got books being printed right and left. It's a fundamentally different world than it was a century before. We're going to have even more paradigm shifts as we go. But i got to start with one thing, one guy that we're already familiar with. Henri. We've seen Henri for, he's king for a while. Henri IV got married again. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but it's helpful to know this. He finally got his marriage to Margaret Annald. He never really liked Margaret, remember? Not a big fan of his wife, Margaret. Finally got his marriage annulled so that he could marry... Gabrielle Destre is his mistress. He's like, oh, we've been dating for a long time. My wife didn't like it, so I got rid of the wife. Now I'm going to be happy. And then she dies before they can get married. Which is kind of an awkward situation. Why? No queen. There's no queen. He's got no queen and no offspring. That is not a good place for an older king to be at. So like, I'm <laughs> upper middle aged and I got nothing. This is not a good idea. So he makes an alliance with Italy and marries... Maria de' Medici, because this is a family that will not go away, right? The Borjas, the Borgias, you don't hear about them quite as much anymore. Rodrigo and Cesar kind of, kind of killed that line for you. I mean, they, they, so messed up, even people went, I don't know, Borgias are kind of messed up. Medici's still around, and they ended up having several children. The reason I bring this up now, even though I'm not going to discuss it, is in a couple of years that's going to be really colorful. Uh, as to what happens when you've got these Medici French Bourbon children who all want the throne at the same time that the mom and her Medici family is trying to control the, th the throne of France. So, we're not quite done with Henri. He'll come back and, and his offspring will come back here soon. But, this is the same year that Giordano Bruno was executed as a heretic. And if you say, I have no idea who that is, fine. But this is kind of important. He's a Dominican scholar who played at being an astronomer. He wasn't a professional astronomer, 
he was convinced that Copernicus, remember him from last century? Copernicus was right. He said, quote, there are countless suns and countless Earths all rotating around their suns in exactly the same way as the seven planets of our system. Well, you can see the seven sun deal. Um, we see only the suns because they are the largest bodies and are luminous, but their planets remain invisible to us because they are smaller and non-luminous. That's 500 years ago, you know, 400 years ago. But you listen to this guy and you go, yeah, that's rock solid. This is really cool. In fact, he said, each of these planets is the exact same size and structure of the Earth, and each is inhabited by its own race of men. Yeah, well, <laughs> this quote is good. <laughs> this quote, this guy rocks. This one, you sit there and uh, no. But, um, he even applied for a teaching position. He was very popular. He was running around doing all this stuff. He begins teaching this position all over Europe, very obnoxiously, gets in people's faces and says, oh, this is the way it must be. Applies for a teaching position in Padua that ends up going to Galileo instead. But he's like, ah, I'm getting popular. But it's important to realize that Bruno didn't come to his conclusions based on his understanding of astronomy. He read Copernicus, that makes total sense, but the reason it made total sense to him, the reason it jived with him, had nothing to do with astronomy. It had to do with the fact that he loved material magic. He loved the idea of saying that God is in all things, all things are in God, therefore every time you look at anything, you see God. Anytime you look at God, you see everything. The spiritual world, the material world, are simply two different versions of the same thing. What we see, in some ways, quantum physicists even go, yes, this is exactly right. But not for the reasons that, that he's saying. But he's like, to me, everything is God, God is everything. Thus, if God is infinite, space must be infinite, right? Because if God is in space, and space is in God, and God is infinite, then space is infinite. Accidentally, he was right. As it turns out, space is infinite. But not because of the reason he thought. In fact, most people, even the best scientists, didn't necessarily think that space was infinite at this particular time. It took a guy coming along going, well, magically, it would almost have to be, wouldn't it? So again, you can look at Bruno and go, oh, he got so much right. Yeah, because he's a nutcase, is why he got this right. He accidentally stumbled into right. And the races with, with which God desires relationship must also be infinite in number. There must be an infinite number of races on an infinite number of Earths around an infinite number of suns, so an infinite God can have infinite relationships. It makes a certain amount of sense, given his wrong premise, but that's where he's coming from. Anyway, he gets imprisoned by the Roman Inquisition, because they're like, you're a nut. You don't get to, you don't get to do that. Nowadays, a lot of times people, and we'll talk about this in a second, people will say, ah, poor Bruno, he was so right, and the Inquisition was against his good science. You know, he had horrible science. He just accidentally was right about some things. But he was charged with eight counts of heresy, only one of which had to do with heliocentrism. Uh, he, he was also accused of denying the virgin birth and the divinity of Jesus. He was accused of denying transubstantiation, which... Those of you that haven't around, that's the idea that when you when you eat the blood and body of Jesus Christ in, in communion, it physically becomes the blood and body of Jesus Christ instead of a, a remembrance. Um, practicing magical arts, which included this belief that all materials and all animals have, are are immortal and have immortal spiritual souls. The chair has a soul. Your shoe has a soul. Actually, that's <laughs> 
teaching this kind of weird pantheism. As a punishment, his tongue is placed in a wooden vice um, so that he can't use it. They did some weird stuff. Actually, you'll see paintings and things of him with his tongue pierced with like a wooden uh, piece or with an iron spike. It's, it was a vice, not a spike. So it was held his, his tongue there. Oh. And then he was burned at the stake in the public square because he's wrong. And that's how you have to deal with heretics, right? Somebody's a heretic, you have to burn them so that everybody knows that they're a heretic. Like I said, modern pseudoscience history tends to see him as this poor stalwart model and, and, uh, for how you're supposed to live in a martyr for, crime, for science, which is goofy. Because really, uh, have you ever heard of Cosmos, the this, this show? This is the most recent incarnation of Cosmos. You may not be able to see this because of, of the lights, but that is a little cartoon bit. Oh, <laughs> okay. Just for the sake of this, there's a little cartoon bit at the beginning of an episode where they were talking about poor Giordano Bruno. He was such a good man and such a poor, poor man, but he still stood up for science against the craziness of Rome. Yet, yeah, no, he was a spoiled rich kid, and he was obnoxious about it. He was running around calling people names. Anybody who disagreed with him, you can turn the light back on. Thank you, though. Anybody who disagreed with him on anything, he would call him all sorts of names and, and things. He, he was really a difficult human being. Um, but here's the crucial thing. The trial and execution were public enough and big enough and he was wild enough and obnoxious enough on so many levels that when the church heard some similar sounding theories coming out of Galileo, they had to respond more intensely. Because if you remember, when we talked about Copernicus, the church went, nah. You know, a Dominican wrote a treatise going, I think he's wrong, and everybody went, okay. It was no big deal, right? Relatively speaking, no big deal. But a century later, when Galileo says roughly the same thing, people just go ballistic. A, because Galileo stuff gets printed and disseminated all over the place. But B, because of people like Giordano Bruno, who are saying, the earth revolves around the sun, because God is infinite, and thus all the people have to be infinite. And, and really... This is God. When you think about it, the church is like, no, we have to stop on this. We have to say this is totally, totally screwy. So when Galileo comes up and says, actually, I, I kind of think the earth does revolve around the sun, people go bonkers. So it helps to put these things in their context as to why that was such a big deal. 1603. Uh, James I knights a guy named Sir Francis Bacon. You ever hear of Francis Bacon? Okay. So James I knights Francis Bacon. I have to stop because English King James I had actually been Scottish King James VI. Gets a little confusing. He had been the sixth king of Scotland named James. When he also became the king of England, he became the first guy named James to be king of England. So if you ever hear of King James VI of Scotland or King James I of England, same guy. <laughs> I say this because Wendy has already complained that I had three Marys and three Henrys. It's only one James. Yeah. Sounds like two, but it's only one guy. Anyway, he was the only son of Mary, Queen of Scots. Remember her? Who had come to power when she was a little bitty baby. And her mom, Marie de Guise, had been her regent, right? And so um, James was very <laughs> powerful on his mother's side. Mary, Queen of Scots, had ruled for a while. Marie de Guise had come from a powerful French family. On his mother's side, he had a lot of sway. But he was also the great-great-grandson of English King Henry VII, a Tudor king. 
This is the guy who had won that War of the Roses. Remember when we talked about the two houses that fought against each other and had established the Tudors as the Royal House of England. And so he's also very powerful on his father's side. On his mother's side, he has Mary Queen of Scots and the Guise family. Here he's got the Tudors behind. Actually, technically, he has Tudors on both sides because a lot of, a lot of cousins marrying at this particular time. But so... So his, uh, Henry is actually his great-great-grandfather on both sides. But anyway, his dad dies really, really young. So James VI is crowned King of Scotland at the age of 13 months. Again, this is the second time in a row that Scotland has put an infant on the throne. John Knox, you remember John Knox? John Knox actually preaches at his coronation. So this is a big, big deal. This is a big, big deal. But the Scottish have learned, because they're like, wait, that whole Mary Queen of Scots being raised and regented by her... Oh, find your own chair, Michael. Uh, being uh, raised and regented by, her, by Marie de Guise. The Scottish are like, that didn't work out so great, right? Anybody remember all that? Okay, that didn't work out so great because they can't trust Marie de Guise and she brought in all this French stuff and everything. They're like, well, do we really want to let Mary, Queen of Scots, raise this, this little kid on the throne... Mary Queen of Scots was decidedly what religion? Her mom was French, so arguably she's probably decidedly Catholic. John Knox is decidedly not Catholic, right? If you remember, my favorite little story about John Knox was uh, that he threw the picture of the Virgin Mary overboard. Remember that? Uh, for those of you that weren't here, he was in, a, in, the, in the French galleys, and he was a galley slave, and they forced all the all the Scottish prisoners to kiss the picture of the Virgin Mary to show their veneration for the Virgin Mary. And they handed it to John Knox and he pitched it over the side of the boat and he said, she's the Virgin Mary, surely she can figure out how to swim. Um, so they didn't do that anymore. Anyway, so John Knox, John Knox is decidedly Protestant. Mary, Queen of Scots, decidedly Catholic. And so they're like, all right, we're, we're imprisoning Mary, Queen of Scots, and James is going to be raised by good Protestant regents. We're getting all that Catholic stuff out of Scotland. We're doing this right. But of course, it's not that simple. It's never that simple. Every time somebody in history goes, I'll oh, simplify things. Yeah, probably not. First off, Mary kept trying to retake the throne. She escaped. She kept, she kept getting help. And then she'd go try to capture James and kidnap him and raise him or so, and it would all fall apart. And it just kept time and time again getting ugly. But, even on the Protestant side, there were nobles like William Lord Riven, the first Earl of Gallery, who tried to kidnap the young king to raise him in an even more militant anti-Catholic regime. He's like, you guys are at least tolerant of Catholicism. We need to teach this kid that it's evil. Plus, this way I get to rule Scotland. Riven actually ruled Scotland for a little over a year. Kind of an important thing. Then eventually he and his whole family were killed or thrown into exile lost two sons on the moors in, uh, in 1600 as they were trying to escape. But you can see where it gets a little complicated here. Even amongst the Protestants going, well, how do we raise this kid? James, luckily, actually grows up relatively solid. He has, he has a bunch of tutors that are tutoring him. Um, they're not nice people, and being Scottish Protestants this particular day, they just regularly beat him. Anytime he did anything wrong, anytime he got any of his lessons wrong, he would be beaten. But he did grow up 
being a very strong and strong-willed person and really smart. Um, he, he wrote several languages. He had written several scholarly texts on theology, political theory. Um, this is a very, very bright, very well-educated guy. And he courted Anne of Denmark as his queen. Now, what's interesting is, as I say here, ignoring time-honored Renaissance traditions, they actually liked each other. As far as we can tell, they actually loved one another. He wrote beautiful letters to her, told, told everybody how much he loved her, didn't have other mistresses. You really? You actually found a girl that you liked, you married her, and were faithful to her. Yeah. yeah. Go figure. You know, how does that even work? Nobody's doing that in this day and age. But but James did. I like James. Well, he's a Scotsman, so he's cool. Um, they were married in Oslo because at this time Denmark was Denmark and Sweden and Norway and parts of German or parts of northern Germany and stuff. They just controlled a lot of that area. And so he used it as the opportunity to meet Tycho Brahe. Has anybody ever heard of Tycho Brahe? Oh, okay. Megan nods. Do okay. you know? Yeah. Um, there's certain things called Tycho in, in, uh, in astronomy. He's a famous astronomer, and he had solved the, the whole obnoxious, pesky heliocentrism debate, because he's like, obviously, everything doesn't revolve around the Earth. If you look at the math, it just doesn't. But here's what we do. The sun and the moon revolve around the Earth. Everything else revolves around the sun. That explains why sometimes planets seem to be going backwards and, and forwards in the sky, which I know other people have tried to argue something called retrograde motion, where no, they just accidentally go backwards every once in a while, and then they go, like, no, 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 this is the way the universe works. And everybody says, oh, come on in, no, come on, in. come on Everybody says, oh, that makes great sense. And even some of the people that, that they go, oh, the math doesn't quite work for that one either. At least, at least it's a move in the right direction, and everybody's like, fine, fine, fine. It is. It's a very elegant, clever solution. And it's half right. You know, it's like, well, the moon does revolve around the earth, and everything revolves around the sun. This is, you only got one part wrong. But it's a part that the Catholic Church loved for him to get wrong. Um, so he's very happy. Now, is there anything about the picture of Tycho other than he looks sad and he's got a big, droopy mustache that is interesting to you? Pardon me? I <laughs> yeah, that would be interesting. Okay, he had a brass nose. He's famous for having a brass nose uh, that, because he lost his real one in a duel with a cousin over a math equation. Uber geek, you know. <laughs> but this is a time in history where people had sword duels over math equations. This is how you solve that. That's not how you solve it. Oh, it so is. No, uh Oh, it's on. Pardon me? It sounds like Cody. It's alright, because it's not like Cody can hear you say that. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, it, it, this is just a funky time in history. you got people being really intense about stuff that we go, yeah, okay, whatever. We fight about important things like soccer matches. You know, if you're if you're in, in Europe or uh, or hockey, if you're in America, Pardon? it can happen here. But Europe, they got that down with science, man. Uh, they'll kill people over that kind of stuff. Anyway, so when Queen Elizabeth died, James is just the natural uh, next person to go because she never had any heirs. Her line stopped with her. 
And so everybody was like, well, do we have any tutors left? Oh, sort of, you got pseudo-tutor up there in, in, in Scotland. So again, uh, he comes down and is the king of England, and for the first time, the crowns of all three realms, England, Ireland, and Scotland, are brought together into a united kingdom uh, and controlled, uh, they controlled all three kingdoms under one rule. Because you'll notice that's the English crest, right? Over here that we've seen different sort of times. And then that's the Scottish crest that we've seen. That's the Irish one. So this picture is actually all three kingdoms together. And you might look at it and go, but it's four parts. How come England's got, a, it's got two parts? It's like, no, it's <laughs> That's right. That's pretty much it in a nutshell. It's like, oh, yeah, we're all equal. We're just more equal over here. <laughs> so were these countries have to be together in United Kingdom instead of separate at that time? Ish. Uh, okay, just recently, Scotland did another vote for independence. You guys follow that? And lost the vote for independence. Scott, more Scottish people voted not to be independent than voted to be independent. Is that because Scotland loves England? You know, well, not exactly, but there are certain diplomatic and economic incentives to say, yay. I mean, Guam may or may not like being under the protector of the United States, but it's kind of nice being connected to the United States on some things. So Guam is fine with that. And even if you go, well, would you like to be independent? You know, oh, independence sounds great, except for that whole, you got to do everything yourself part. Um, Megan, Anna, Sarah, you're going to go off to college and things soon. You're going to run into that and you go, oh, independence, crap, i got to do my own laundry. That's what we think. So, <laughs> that's kind of the way it is here. It's like, were they, were, they, were they happy to be part of the United Kingdom? No. Um, Ireland's sitting there going, we've kind of been there already for a while. I mean, we have kings for the last couple of kings who called themselves end of Ireland. It's like, really? You know, so, um, they didn't necessarily like it, but at the same time, they realized diplomatically, it's kind of nice to be connected to a, a superpower. Um, but as a result, this gave, again, King James the first of England tons of power, unprecedented power, that instead of having to conquer Scotland and conquer Ireland, diplomatically says, okay, we're all together. I was already the king of Scotland, now I'm the king of England. Peacefully, we've all become one country. Go, that's, that's, that's kind of big. This is kind of, uh, I, I no longer have active, large turmoil in my own boundaries. We're all technically on the same page. That that gives him some staying power and it allows him to do some different things that that other monarchs couldn't because they're too busy trying to wrangle people through most of the reign. So James actually gets to accomplish some stuff. One of the things is he accomplishes knighting Francis Bacon, which is where we started all this. Bacon is the son of a knight in London. He's not, not really a noble, but he's a peer of the realm. He wanted to study science. That was where his heart was. But his dad's like, no, 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 no. You're going to be a politician. We're, we're, I want you to get knighted. I want you to be important. This is what you're going to do. You're going to be a judge. You're going to be a parliamentarian. That's, that's where the money is. That's where the power is. But he did his judgeship, and he did his parliamentarian kind of ministry as a scientist would. He, start, he, he tried to look at everything empirically. What do I mean by empirically? Anybody know what that, that word means? Empiricism? Yeah, Michael. Uh, through the data that you can see and observe. There you go. Perfect. Look at what you have in front of you. Try not to read into it. Just build from it. 
build your argument out of the stuff that's sitting in front of you. So he actually created an early version of what would later be called the scientific method, or the Baconian method. Baconian after Bacon, this guy. Uh, this whole idea of saying, well, you, you want to do some research, you want to look at the data, you want to build your hypotheses off the data, then make your decisions. Why would that have been kind of unique for a judge at this time? How do, they, how do you feel like they normally did court cases if not like this? Because that's the way we do court cases today, right? Let's look at the testimony. Let's figure out your innocent until proven guilty. Let's find out what's going on now. Yeah. Rich guy says the poor guy defrauded him. You go, okay, then poor guy's going to go to prison. Poor guy goes, wait, I defrauded him? What? What? This guy took my last sheep. I got nothing. My son is going to starve. He's, he's, he's got mutton going rancid on his table. What? what? I'm the one that defrauded him? Oh, now you're speaking badly of a noble. More years for you. Nasty time to be in trouble with the, with the judgeship. Except Bacon's like, no, we really ought we really ought to say, instead of just making assumptions, if somebody says you're guilty, you probably are. No, no, no. Stop and just say, let's look at what we have sitting in front of us. What's interesting is, is this is similar to what had been devised centuries earlier by Roger Bacon. Remember when we talked about Roger Bacon and that he had kind of been one of the first modern scientists, he was kind of the father of modern science? Yes, no, Okay, this is confused school children for centuries, because there's no relation between Roger Bacon and Francis Bacon. They both ate bacon. It just had, but they, they're not from the same family at all. And so people say, wait, so is the scientific method, is that Francis Bacon or Roger Bacon? Um, yes, independently of one of them. So they ate different types of bacon? Sure. See, congregational. You know, so it's like there's always going. 
going to be hierarchy. You never can pull the humanity out of humanity. But even with checks and balances. Yeah, even what and this is the the trick is the trick is to say, let's let's try to be aware that we always have this potential for letting things get to our heads and, and, and letting authority go to our heads. And let's try to make sure that the people who are making decisions in the church are people that you can trust. Ironically, that's pretty much the way the Bible says it. Yeah. Well, wasn't part of their thing about the elders in the other churches? It was the Pope saying, "Okay, you're my cardinal, you're my cardinal, yeah. top down." Where the congregational says, "Okay, let's vote on who's going to represent us." Again, early on, uh, yes. Early. It's it, not it, the same way. Same way right now. Yeah. A lot of congregations. Absolutely. That's the way they did it to begin with. That's the way we do it here. Um, later Puritan churches got to the point where the elders chose who was going to be the next elders. And then the congregation would vote on that, but the elders chose the elders, which is a little bit of the way we do it in that we're tapping people and things, but it's still the congregation giving support and giving input and all that kind of stuff, as opposed to the elders going, doink, Ben's now an elder. He's now in charge because we like him. Now, I'm not, I don't want to pick on these guys too much because they have the right idea of saying, we don't want this to get, uh, to get lost in hierarchy. I'm just saying, much like when we talked about the Amish saying, ah, if we just if we just get away from sinful things, we will no longer be sinful. And you go, um, no, you'll just take sin with you. That makes you a little bit dangerous if you do that. But these guys are like, nope. Uh, bishops are wrong. Uh, popes are wrong. We've got we to gotta be completely congregational, which, in point of practice, this is what we follow. Anyway, this is, since all sin comes from a desire for personal pleasure over and above for desiring God's glory, then all personal pleasure is at least suspect, if not sinful by association. Now again, not every Puritan congregation took it this far. And when we think about Puritans, we always picture them dressed in black and things. No, dressed in colors and stuff. I mean, they, they dressed like most other people dressed. But the basic idea of saying, if you're doing something for your pleasure, that's probably, it's probably bad. If you're enjoying something, something's probably gone wrong. And, and I'm, not, I'm not kidding. I mean, you'll have a lot of Puritan writers saying, I preached a sermon and everybody thought it was a really good sermon. So... I need to be careful not to do that again. You know, they, they actually stayed awake. Uh, Puritan congregations later on, they, they, they had a thing called, called different things, but at least my favorite name for it is a whacking stick. Um, a, a long stick that had a ball on one end and a feather on the other end. So when, uh, when they would walk around during the extremely long services, and if a guy had fallen asleep, they'd whack him with a stick. And if a woman, woman falls asleep, they tickle her with a, with a feather to wake her up. We are so good. <laughs> I apologize to the youth right now. Anyway. But, uh, but, yeah. They also used an herb called a cosmary, and they would have those in their Bibles, and they would use that. Oh, so it's like their own little personal smelling sauce. <laughs> now, again, you have Puritans who are like, awesome preach. Some of the best preaching that we got came out of this group. So, I mean, you had people who took this very seriously and, and did a really good job of it, but there's this, this general sense of, of Puritanism that says laughter, joviality, singing for personal pleasure, art for art's sake, these are all bad things. This is all inherently bad because you're doing it for you. So, if you're singing in the shower, you'd get in trouble. If you, and they would, they would say people who are singing out as they're working in their fields would be like, but you're, you're not singing in, in church. You're, you're sinning because you're, you're enjoying life. Depending on an era, yes. Actually, sometimes that's what... Uh, do you need something? 
It's coming in. Depending on the era, yes, that's that what some people would say. Or um, there are whole sermons on laughter, on joy, on joking being bad, especially in church, because you're supposed to be very, very serious. Now, again, not every Puritan is doing this, but this is where we get the term puritanical. You know, it is an unfortunate caricature of this movement. That is something that the movement is saying. It, it, we get the word puritanical for, for good reason, but if we apply it to broadly, we assume that all the Puritans are what we would consider puritanical, and that's not entirely fair. But this is what they're coming out of. Now, what's interesting is there is one particular offshoot of the Puritans, uh, led by a guy named John Smith, who was an English pastor who lived in Holland with his Calvinist group, because remember, there's a lot of Calvinists floating around in Holland, because they left England when we had a bunch of Catholics running England. In 1609, Smith said, you know, we need to separate from the Church of England for a couple of different reasons. And so they start becoming called separatists. So he's like, number one, the church is still baptizing infants, and the scriptures never bear any witness to baptizing infants. You never see an infant baptized in scripture. Instead, only believers are baptized. The Bible is very, very clear about that. I should be clear about something else. They didn't consider themselves part of the Anabaptist movement. Because remember, there's this, all this, this whole group of Anabaptists running around who believe something the same thing. These guys, Smith's Calvinists, say, no, 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 no. We don't agree with the, with the Anabaptists about anything else. We just accidentally happen to agree with them on this. Okay? It's like, yeah, no, I just, just reading the Bible, I've come up with this myself. It has nothing to do with any of the things that those crazy Mennonites and stuff are doing. Number two, that means that the church should be comprised only of believers. The only people who get baptized are believers. Therefore, you can't have a state church that tells people they're part of the church just because they're born in this nation. You can't say you're part of the Church of England just because you're born in England. That doesn't make you a Christian. You have to be a believer to be a Christian. You have to be a believer to be, a, to be baptized, and you have to be baptized to be a member. Therefore, you can only be a believer to be a member of the church. That's right. It's like, like we talked about before, you can't say, I'm standing in a garage, therefore I'm a Buick. It doesn't work like that, right? I'm standing in England, therefore I'm a Christian in the Church of England. No. And so these guys said, no, you have to be a believer in order to be part of the church. Do you see where these things come from naturally, from this, from this, the way they're understanding this? So these Puritan separatists became popularly known as Baptists. Now, I go into this because nowadays there's over 200 different Baptist denominations with 100 million people in them uh, worldwide. But since we've spent a, a bunch of time talking about Anabaptism, an amazing number of people say, so Baptists are just Anabaptists, they're the same things. And you go, no, they share one thing in common. I mean, and, and a love for the Lord and a love for Scripture and things. But theologically, they share just the one thing in common. And both of them look at it and go, Accidentally, we share this in common. We both have figured it out from looking at scripture. But the theology of Mennonitism and how they understand different things is very different from the theology of a lot of Baptist churches and how they understand things. The Baptists began, and still for the most part, tend to be very Calvinist in how they're looking at things. Now you understand why. Because they came out of a Calvinist group. Very few. There are some. Arminian. There are a couple, but they nobody else seems to like them. Uh, 
I mean, there's a the, the running joke is that no Baptist tends to like any other Baptist from any other Baptist church. There's 200 different warring denominations within Baptism. Um, Baptistism. 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 Anyway, but um, but they, 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 they're just like, we, we feel very strongly about what we believe, and you don't believe the same thing we do, therefore. Not. So there are Arminian Baptist churches, but not very many, and nobody else seems to like them. So, no, Baptists tend to be extremely Calvinist with, with how they go about things, which is interesting because people will tend to go, oh, Baptists, Anabaptists, Assemblies of God, they're all basically the same thing. And all of those churches just bang their heads against the wall going, we're nothing like the other two. So, anyway, we're talking about Francis Bacon. Anyway, so, in part because James had such affection for Francis Bacon, he says, all right, I'm actually going to listen to these Baptists. I'm going to listen to the arguments that they have. Um, I want to hear what they've got against the Church of England. So we're going to have the Hampton Court Conference in 1604, where the Baptists said, we're going to argue against making the sign of the cross during baptism. When you baptize somebody, it was traditional to make the sign of the cross over them like Catholics do. And they said, you can't do that because that's what Catholics do. So you've you got to stop that. Uh, you got to stop confirmation. What's the problem with confirmation? Think from the Baptist standpoint. What's the problem with confirmation? It's confirming your baptism. Yeah, it's confirming. This is what the word confirmation means. It's confirming that when Alex was baptized as an infant, he became a Christian at that point. Later, I'm going to confirm that in a confirmation class. We're going to go through and we're going to teach him this, the fundamentals of Christianity. And if Alex goes, yeah, that totally connects with me. Yes, I totally buy this. Then obviously God had, had, had changed him in baptism. If Alex goes, I don't believe any of that. I'm a rebel. Then obviously his baptism didn't take. Um, that's that's what confirmation is. You've got to confirm what God has done in them. Um, you can understand from a Baptist standpoint where they'd sit there and go, well, that's pretty much a horror. You know, you, they didn't become a Christian at infant baptism. You don't become a Christian because somebody else moistens you. You become a Christian because you accepted Christ. You can't confirm what never happened. Confirmation, therefore, is bad. Classes to teach them truth, catechisms and things, that's wonderful. Confirmation, not good. So, anti-confirmationalists. Um, which, is, which is in part why we don't do confirmation here. We do Sunday school classes, we do mentoring things. We don't do confirmation because we don't think there's any salvation at infant baptism to confirm later. So, anyway. Baptists, uh, so any baptism performed on infants by lay people, because a lot of like midwives and things like that would baptize. No, no, no it's got to be got to be a, a, a pastor of a congregation. Um, the use of a ring in marriage ceremonies—that's a fetish, obviously. That's just horrible. Get that voodoo stuff away from me. Um, bowing at the name of Jesus, like he's just another noble, like all the other nobles. No, 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 no. You don't do that because it's what people when you say Jesus, you automatically bow, kind of like. Muslims, if you say Muhammad, they'll say, you know, blessed be his name, blessings upon him. You, 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 have to, you have to always do that for Jesus. I'm like, no, that just makes it knee-jerk reactionary. No. Um, clerical vestments that, that a pastor would have to put on a collar or a hat or anything like that. No, no, no. Shouldn't have to do any of that kind of stuff. Clergy receiving pay for their ministerial role. No, no, no. The Bible never talks about that. You know, yes, it does. Paul says specifically, I don't take pay for this, but other people, you know, you should pay them. Like, oh, no, no. Never pay a cleric. No, that's horrible. Anyway. Um, so, I'll back up here. So, 
some of these things we look at and we say, okay, yeah, I, I see I see where this is coming from. Others we look at today and we go, I, I really don't have a problem with a wedding ring. I don't, don't think that's a problem. But you can see where these guys are saying, we want to remove anything that smacks of impurity. Anything that's going to draw people the wrong direction and away from God, away from worship, into something that's just outward. Something that's just rote. Got a, a handle on the Puritans? Obviously, we're going to see them later on. But all right. Same time, the same year that these guys start up, there's the same year that a guy named Fausto Sozzini uh, proposed to his, he's an Italian uh, theologian, but he proposed to his Polish brethren church that everything they believed is wrong. Yeah, you're, you're all wrong. Here's what it is. The Holy Spirit is just an expression of God's power. It's not a person. It's just God's spiritualness. Jesus wasn't God in the flesh. He was simply God's son conceived in the Virgin Mary. But he's not like God. He's just God sculpted him. So he's the perfect human being, but he's only a human being. <coughs> Didn't exist before his birth. He's just, he's just a guy. You can see a bunch of by the way, this is a lot of stuff. This is the same thing that, say, the Jehovah's Witnesses would believe, or the Mormons would believe, anything like that. Not this last bit necessarily, but the, but the first two points here. When Jesus died, he didn't die to pay for anyone's sins. He died as an example of how we should live with utter selflessness. We should live with abandon for God. That's how we're saved from sin, is by living out Jesus' example. Does that sound familiar? To, do you remember when we talked about different theories of atonement? Anybody remember what this is called? Technically, it's called the moral influence theory. And um, so you got Peter Abelard that has this moral influence theory saying Jesus died primarily to show us how to live. A version of this is the covenant's general understanding of atonement. That that Jesus' death infuses us with his righteousness, and we live out his example by what we do. Um, and remember Michael Servetus, when we talked about him a little bit ago, and this Unitarian theology of God, there's only one God, not a trinity? That's crazy talk. Remember Servetus that Calvin himself oversaw his, his execution? A lot of Enlightenment thinkers said, we're Socinians. We, we think this. Thomas Jefferson, Samuel Coleridge, Isaac Newton, Voltaire, they're like, yes, this is our version of Christianity. This is what we self-identify as. So, for, so you sit there and go, well, what do I care about when an Italian told a bunch of Polish people? This became all the rage of intellectuals in the, in the Enlightenment. If you're going to be an intellectual Christian, you've got to get rid of all that supernaturalism and believe... i, I got to do... Sorry, it's just, it's the voice I've got to do. Um, but... You've got to get rid of all the supernaturalism. You've got to believe that Jesus is just a wonderful model of how to live as an intellectual. That's the way that they viewed it. This, whether you call it uh, Socinianism or not, this has made a comeback in the last 20 years. An amazing number of Christians, especially on college campuses, if they're Christians, will start gravitating toward this. This makes a lot more sense because you don't have pesky things like a pre-existing Christ, or a Holy Spirit that's a person, you have to understand how that works, etc. And now we're back to that kind of moralistic, therapeutic deism that we talked about before. It's kind of sticky, discussing that with your peers. Yes, because by definition, if people are believing this because it makes them feel intellectual, and you say, but that's, that's not right, you're going to sound stupid. 
you're going to sound less intellectual, right? And so, yeah, it's really difficult to have a legitimate, intelligent conversation with people because the mere fact that you're trying to have a conversation about it means that they can dismiss you as not being intelligent. Makes it difficult. 1605. Something called the gunpowder plot. Has anybody heard of this? Uh, Guy Fawkes. Guy Fawkes. There you go. Radical Catholic Guy Fawkes says, I, I, I had enough of James and all this. Tons of Protestants. We're getting rid of James. We're getting rid of everybody. Ha, ha, ha. I've got a plan. <laughs> me and my guys, me and my buds, we have collected 36 barrels of gunpowder, and we are going to blow up Parliament, the king, the queen, the children, the whole royal family, everybody, on November 5th when Parliament convenes next. In one fell swoop, we're getting rid of the entire British government. Get rid of all those Protestants. Get good Catholics in there. Conspirators sent this anonymous letter beforehand so that when it happened, they could see, we knew this. We did this. So they all got caught. Because <laughs> it's dumb to do that. And so they sent this anonymous letter. People are like, you know, I think that's Tom that did that. Oh, okay. They went and arrested Tom. So they're all caught. They're all publicly drawn and quartered. Uh, oh, yeah. Again, you do something wrong, you don't just get hanged. You do something wrong, they do nasty, nasty, nasty things to you in public. In fact, Parliament passed a law that from that point on, November 5th, should it be a public holiday in Britain so that Guy Fawkes can be continually burned in effigy every year. Every year, burn him again. It's not enough that we kill him once, kill him every stinking year from now on. They still do. <laughs> People wear, they host bonfire parties, they wear Guy Fawkes masks, and yes, this is popularized by the movie V for Vendetta and the comic book V for Vendetta. Um, comic book's better than Lee, but that's right. Um, and, they, and they even commemorated this. The, there's several different poems that begin with these first lines. Remember, remember the 5th of November, the gunpowder treason and plot. I know of no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgotten. And so not only do you appreciate this from just like a, a little ditty standpoint, but you realize that England's like, no, seriously, every year, remember this. There's no reason to forget this. Why do you think that's such a big deal? Why did England pass a law, always, always, always remember, kill Guy Fox? Why, why is that such a big deal? Let this be an example to anyone who would dare try this again. Yes! And it's interesting, though, that people don't just go, oh, okay, but they're like, Happy to burn Guy Fawkes. Why are people so giddy to be yeah, oh, I'll burn him. Besides the fun, it's always fun to set a bonfire. <laughs> it's always fun to throw paper airplanes at the bonfire. Oh, crash! Why, why, why do the people get into this, though? Because English people are natural. <laughs> That's where I was going. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> Yeah, like that's English people. Yeah, the Germans don't like fires at all. It's almost like a scapegoat. Okay, how so? I, I don't know. No, I think you're right. It, I don't know, you can kind of associate any, anything you see as seditious going on in your society with spirit of Guy Fawkes and then burn him again every year. Actually, people will even refer to that. There, there are politicians who refer to why, you know, somebody says, I think we should do this differently than what we've been doing. Why, you're in the spirit of Guy Fawkes. Why don't you just blow up Parliament while you're at it? It's, it's an easy way to demonize anybody who says that the government might be doing something wrong. Um, 
But also the people of, of, of Britain have a kind of a weird love-hate thing going with their, with their, with their government. They, they're just like, oh, you know, may the queen live forever, which she has so far, right? She's like, <laughs> the queen of England is like 300 years old. <laughs> um, but, but they're like, yeah, God save the queen. She's very, very saved at the moment. But, uh, but they, 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 they're very big on that. Even in places like uh, Canada and Australia, they'll still speak very lovingly of the royals. Um, it's a very positive thing. This is our, and the idea that somebody would say, I'm taking out the entire British government, you know, casting you back into absolute chaos after you finally come together as a united kingdom. Yeah, nobody in England wanted that. Even, you know, even the, the, the other Catholics are like, what are you, nuts? You can't kill off children? You killed off the royal children? You killed off all the parliament? You can't do that. That's just crazy talk. So everybody pretty much said, this is a horror. Which is interesting, though, because uh, I mentioned something the other night about this, and I, I don't remember whether it was Megan or Alex, said something about, um, uh, boy, we'd never get into that over here, or that was really weird over there, or whatever. I don't remember exactly how you said it. But Guy Fawkes Day was actually a big deal in the colonies. For the longest time, we were doing because we're part of the British colonies. We're part of the British Commonwealth, right? So, yeah, until, until revolutionaries started going, yeah, kind of had the right idea. <laughs> Guy Fawkes Day became itself, ironically, seditious. At which point England said, okay, America doesn't get to do Guy Fawkes Day anymore. Everybody else gets to do Guy Fawkes Day, but not the colonies in America. Kind of an important thing. It becomes a little bit of a litmus test as how you actually feel about the British government. So, obviously King James survives the attempt. He's king for another 20 years after this. And does all sorts of nifty things over those next 20 years. Right? Uh, what are some things that, that King James might be known for? Bible translation. King James Bible. Oh, you're, okay, wait. Not Sarah. Anybody but Sarah, what year did the King James Bible come out? Now, the reason I ask this is A, it's important. B, they just recently had the, the anniversary of it, and C, there's even a blank edition of the King James Bible out there. This is the year it was made. Anybody know? Very close. Closer. 1611. 1611. <laughs> so there's actually a 1611 Bible out there. And what's interesting is if you if you grab yourself a 1611 King James Bible and look at it next to the King James Bible, there are actually a lot of differences. That's, I mean, it's not wholly different, but there's a lot of differences. You realize the, the with a W. But it's interesting because there will be people who say, ah, you know, God. God only speaks in King James in English. God speaks it's the King James Bible. That's God's Bible. You know, well, God technically wrote it in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. But not in that. They're like, oh, but this is the King James Bible. Anytime, anytime someone goes, but this is the King James Bible. It's the, it's the one that was written in 1611. You can look at it and go, no, it isn't. It's an edited version of the one that was. Anyway, I grew up reading the King James Bible. I love the King James Bible. I'll make you a deal. I'll even quote from the King James Bible in the sermon. How about that? Okay, there you go. Love the King James Bible. Yes? When do you think that the British acts have kind of died down to the point where it was different here than it was in England? Um, I don't know, and I'm not sure that... I'm not sure that... Uh, that's, uh, hold on, let me get back to that. What were you going to say about this topic? I was just saying, is the 1611 Bible from the Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek translation or from... Let's get 
get to that when we get to 1611, because that's a totally legit question. All right. Um, but back to yours. Um, accents shift over time. Accents are even different now than the, uh, the quote-unquote American accent is different now than it was in the 30s, the 1930s. So, I mean, I, I would say it's, it's always been shifting with things. Um, if you listen to, like, a southern <coughs> speed it up a little bit, and it's, it, it actually starts sounding a lot like cocky. Um, it, it, it actually is kind of, yeah. I think some linguists have done studies in Appalachia where you have these very isolated people groups that haven't interacted with other people in a long, long time, and uh, they think that there are some theories that the way people in Appalachia talk is probably actually closer to what Shakespeare sounded like than um, modern British. Well, if you remember when we listened to, I, I, I played different versions of um, the Lord's Prayer at different times. Um, there's a lot of theories as to what things sound like, um, but, but one of the theories that actually I read that, that makes a lot of sense is that Shakespearean English would sound almost like what we would consider a modern Irish or even better yet maybe Devonshire accent. That it, 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 would, it would have a very, very different feel back then than it has now. So the classic, uh, what do they call it, the received uh, English accent, this, this, this high upper crust trilled R, what you'd always hear people doing in, in Shakespearean movies and things. Yeah, no, yeah, that's not the way Shakespeare would have sounded back then. So it, so it's hard to answer the when did it change because you go, well, English changed and American changed and, and they both continue to change as time goes on. But if you listen to, if you listen to like radio broadcasts from the 1930s and 40s and listen to what they considered a flat American accent, it's different from what we would now consider a flat American accent. So, uh, for that matter, a lot of Scotsmen went to um, went up north to, to Canada and Minnesota and things like that. So you actually have uh, a lot of uh, Scottish vowels. About you know, there's if you take the trills out. That's totally Scottish, really. Yeah, if you take the trills out, a lot of a lot of what we think of as Canadian accents uh, is, is Scottish. So there's, there's a lot of different versions, which is why when you hear British people trying to do an American accent in a movie, a lot of times they'll just go for the southern accent because it's the easiest one for them to do. Because it's all it all it really is is an exaggeration of a lot of English accents. I'm not picking on anybody's accent. I'm just saying. What was I saying? Oh, okay. So 1611. That's 1611. Before that, there's something else that happens. What? The founding of Jamestown. The founding of Jamestown. Very good. 1607. Jamestown. Jamestown is named Jamestown because King James, right? Yeah, there you go. So you can always remember when Jamestown was founded. It's during this guy's rule. The Virginia Company, which is named by uh, Sir Walter Raleigh after the Virgin Queen, Elizabeth, Virginia, the Virgin Queen. She wasn't a virgin. She just never got married, never had children. Um, Do we know that for sure? Yes, we're very certain that she never had children. No, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of really good documented evidence that she had several okay. favorite gentlemen. Um, but she never had children for, uh, realistically, she was probably infertile because of different things. But she never had children. There's some questions as to why she never married, but I'm not even going to get into that. Anyway, the point is, is Virginia, because she's the Virgin Queen, that's what they call her. Anyway, they sent three ships to set up a new settlement in, in America, just up the coast from the lost colony of Roanoke. Remember last time when we talked about the lost colony? It just disappeared. Nobody knows what happened to Roanoke. 
no, no, no. They went to Croatoan Island. They carved Croatoan on stuff. Everybody said they went to, all the no locals said they went to Croatoan Island. The local the Croatoan Indians said, yeah, they came over here. Croatoan Island natives have white blood in them. Yeah, they went to Croatoan Island. Yeah, nobody knows. They just disappeared. Aliens! Beam them away. Anyway, uh, so just up the coastline from North Carolina into Virginia, um, and a tributary off of the Chesapeake Bay that they named the James River, because the James River is also named after King James. So you got this James River, which isn't actually technically a, not much of a river. Anyway, the point is, is that you've got this little island here called Jamestown Island, and they like the location here, because they're like, this is great, it's a nice little pinch point here, and you can defend <laughs> it really, really easily if we put a fort right there. This is great. Plus, the local natives, they don't, there's no local natives here. There's local natives in other places, but not on this island. Because it's a horrible island. It's just all swampland. It's not, the local natives are like, you can't grow anything there. It's just got mosquitoes. That's all you can grow is mosquitoes. This is, you can grow malaria. That's all you can grow. Pardon me? I was going to say, that's going to be my next question. Why don't they live there? Yeah. There may be a good reason why nobody lives there. A little bit of logic goes a long way. You know, it's like, oh, look, let's be on this mountain. No, the natives never come to this mountain. Why might that be? What's well, an active volcano? It'll be great! Oh, no, no, not a good idea. Bad call, bad call. Anyway, that's assume going to be a problem when it comes to the colony starts trying to grow food and finds out that they can't grow food. It's like, ah, it's going to start getting really hungry really, really quick. Um, they'd had some problems with the natives early on, but by this time everything was doing pretty well. But one of the leaders of colony, I got... <laughs> Get over it. One of the leaders of the colony is a guy named John Smith. No relation to John Smith, who spells it with a Y. The other guy, um, who actually looks like this. <laughs> famous for his beard. Which well, he's, I, he's much more handsome. I think so, too. But uh, he's famous for his beard, which is why I'm like, really? You made him clean shaven in the Disney movie? Anyway. I know. Big <laughs> red, bushy beard. Okay, but he was captured by local natives in April and taken to their chief, Powhatan, um, who, again, doesn't look like this. But Powhatan's actual name isn't even Powhatan. His name is Wahun Senecook. The region is Powhatan. So they're like, this is the chief of the Powhatan. And they go, okay, so Chief Powhatan, we have to go. No, no, the region is Powhatan. Yeah, so, uh, dude, Mr. Powhatan, we have a question for you. You dumb. Anyway, so they call him Virginia. They call him Powhatan, but he was going to bash Smith's brains in until the chief's daughter, Pocahontas, saved him, laying herself over his, his head saying, no, do not kill this man. That actually happened. Just It didn't happen like the Disney movie. It probably actually happened. Is What happened was she's like 10 or 11 at the time. Not this not this 20-year-old babe or something. There's some little baby. But she's like, Dad, this is not the way to do this. And she kept trying to tell him, stop, stop. And, and, and the father picked up his, his war club and was going to bash his whacking stick. And was going to bash his head in. And she actually laid across Smith's head and said, to, to smash him, you'd have to smash me. And, and it, it at least made her dad stop long enough to, 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 to think and listen and talk to him. But that means she didn't look like this. She didn't look like Disney had her look. And it also means that she and John Smith never had any kind of love affair. What the fact that he's like in his 30s and she's 10. It's not going to work out. This never happened. And trees don't talk. All right? So, <laughs> <laughs> trees don't talk. 
Doesn't happen. Um, later on, she became a Christian, changed her name to Rebecca, and married a guy named John Rolfe, because apparently everybody's named John. Um, but to be fair, Disney did try to kind of fix that. After Pocahontas, they made one called Pocahontas 2, where she meets John Rolfe and goes to England and stuff. They got the timeline all wrong. She doesn't become a Christian, but they at least tried to fix it. Now, do you, for those of you that have seen this movie, do you, do you remember this guy, John Ratcliffe, the villain of the picture? Yeah. This guy's evil. In real life, he's a nice guy. He was actually a really classy guy in real life. Um, he, he tried to, to trade with the natives. He tried to be positive, tried to help people. In fact, one of the local native tribes even invited them to their village to trade for food during the starving time. That's what the Jamestown settlers called it when they were all starving. It's like the starving time. At which point they slowly skinned them with muscle shells and then burned them alive. And then Disney made him the bad guy. Arguably, Radcliffe was the victim here in real life. So even to me, even more than the talking tree um, and the adult Pocahontas, this to me is an abomination of history. Where you go, this guy was lied to and tortured slowly to death by the Native Americans, and you make him the bad guy who kills all the Native Americans? Oh no. Heck no. Situation is so horrible at Jamestown that two thirds of the colonists died before relief ships could get there. Out of the two hundred and uh, almost, you know, almost, almost three quarters, because there's something like so a little over two hundred people, like two hundred twenty people, and by the time the relief ships got there, it was like sixty-seven left. Um, they called it the starving time, and yes, at least one fourteen-year-old girl was cannibalized. Um, we don't know how. We know she got smacked in the back of the head several times and dismembered and eaten. We don't know if it was one very, very sick, disturbed, scared, hungry guy or a family or the whole community. We don't know. But it was a bad time. Um, but then the seventh fleet, the seventh ship fleet comes from England in 1610 and Jamestown... My ancestors Really? Cool. Do you remember who, what their name is? Cool. This book also brought John Rolfe, uh, who was the guy that married Pocahontas. John Rolfe, did anybody know what else John Rolfe is famous for? He brought something with him, because the ships actually stopped at Bermuda and then came up. Tobacco. Tobacco. He brought this new industry of tobacco. He brought tobacco seeds from Bermuda, and they grew tobacco here in the New World. John Rolfe became crazy rich, and, and, and Jamestown colony thrived because of tobacco. Was the tobacco able to grow there at the Jamestown area, or did they use somewhere else? Yeah, I don't think it. Um, I don't know. No, they stayed in Jamestown for reasons that astound me. Um, I don't know. I don't know because tobacco usually requires like dry ground to do, but they maybe just did it on the mainland nearby. Well, he had a huge plantation, so yes, he had a, he had a massive plantation, so it was actually on the mainland of Virginia. Anyway, sixteen eleven. King James Version of the Bible is published. We'll have to get to that next week because we've run out of time. But, oh, get over it. It's the anticipation that, that makes it exciting. Oh, good. Come back for next week and we'll talk about the King James Bible, at which point we'll answer your question as to where exactly it came from. But, I want you to see a little bit. What, what, how would you summarize what's going on at this point in history and the reign of King James, even just this first eight years? 
it made things a lot better in England because that's when they started going from the world to escape him, so or to escape the religion there. Okay. But remember, um, actually, most people in James, uh, the people in Jamestown stuff, they weren't escaping anything. They're going. No, you're right. 1620. By the time you get to 1620, you'll get um, the separatists that, that go there, the, the pilgrims, and and it's still within the the the, the, the reign of James the first. But again, are the separatists that we just talked about, the, the 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 Puritans that we're just talking about, were they trying to escape a an oppressive religious Regime. What were? Why were they saying separate from this religion? Because it's a state church. What? There was. There was. There was an argument that at least a couple of preachers were like, you know, "Hey, reboot. You know, a whole new thing. If we go to a new land, it'll be a new thing. It'll be brand new, fresh and clean." What were you saying? I just said that they. So, it, it, so at, at that stage, at this stage, the separatists are thinking it's not necessarily a, an oppressive religious regime, or even like it's corrupt, like Rodrigo Borgia was corrupt, as much as it's it's like the concept is corrupt. We need to start a whole fresh new thing. Um, so, at, at least in this stage of the game, people aren't necessarily thinking of escaping James and 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 his rule as much as rebooting and starting something afresh. So the scene for the First Amendment. Yeah, actually, it, it comes from some of this time period. That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. I'm getting a, a basic feeling of, I don't know, things are kind of settled down a bit. Not smoothly, but um, trending in that direction. But also, Shooting off directions, both physically and, 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 and mentally. Actually, that's probably, that's probably, let's end with that, because that's probably not a bad way of synopsizing it. Because things are kind of settling down, when you get people like Guy Fawkes, even the general person on the street that doesn't care, sits there and goes, well, you can't do that. Things are finally okay now. Stop with that. And so some of those more extreme versions are having, to, they're not being stamped down as much as people are going, nah. And so they have to kind of find their own places. Now there's a whole new place over here to the left of the map where they can find their own new place. So they're going to start moving over there. So as people come to the new world, and now this is where I'll pull in what you're saying, as people come to the new world, there's a sense of we can do this right now. We can, we can do this the way we want to do it. There, there, there's a way of doing this right. Which means that the moment people set foot on the shore, it becomes a debate of, what exactly constitutes right? Because even amongst the Puritans and the pilgrims coming to the New World, there are people going, yeah, but can't we do this, right? No, 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 split this. No, 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 split. Because again, wherever you go, there you are, right? You're taking you with you wherever you go. The idea that, oh, this will be totally different. You go, really? Built on the same stuff? Yeah, then it's not going to be totally different. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for thank you for the wisdom that comes from understanding our traditions, understanding our backgrounds, understanding who's come before and why they've come before, why they made the decisions that they have. Help us, Lord, to to glean wisdom from you, to glean wisdom from your word, 
to understand where people have done very, very good things or very, very unwise things in the history of, of your church and to, to learn from those things so that we, we can look at our steps and instead of thinking that what we're doing is so very, very different that we can understand that we're still part of that same human condition and capable of the same levels of genuine, sincere worship and the same levels of genuinely sincere stupidity. We pray, Lord, be glorified with the choices that we make and the reasons that we make them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much.